There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. The Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right. Before, before we get too started, uh, Jimmy Dorn, you're, you're fresh from the wheat fields of Montana. Yes, I'm just back, just uh, just the other day. You go out every year and cut wheat. Every year on my friend's wheat farm, yeah. Do uh, a couple weeks of harvests and just had a little break, came back to the bar for a couple of days, take care of his business at the restaurant, and uh, end of the month stuff, and then right back to go. We just switched over from cutting winter wheat, now we're moving on to spring wheat, which is still a little bit high in moisture, so it's worked out perfect. How, like how? Why did you? Why and how? How many years have you been cutting wheat for? This is my fourth, third year. Okay, and uh, was one of my best friends. His uh, family. I met him actually. We worked at a restaurant together here in Seattle, and um, his uh, his family runs a a big wheat operation uh, north of Great Falls. Uh, Dan Ruther's really fantastic people in the Gas Vodas, and uh, we just uh, went through a deal, and and uh, he had uh, his father actually unfortunately passed away at a pretty young age, and kind of you know it was kind of a it's like just kind of all hands on deck kind of a thing. So I went back and helped out and uh, just love it. I mean, just they, driving a big old combine. Dude, they trust me. Chopping to drive. up all kinds of raccoons and antelopes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. A little bit of wheat. The raccoons <laughs> get in the way occasionally. Uh, but uh, yeah, they trust me driving really huge, cool, super expensive pieces of equipment. And I just love it. So Tell me how, like, give me the, what's the volume again? Like how much wheat you cut, how quick? <sighs> well, I couldn't really break it down how much, how quick. I mean, we fill a lot of semis. It, it's we can fill up like a seven hundred fifty bushel hopper in minutes. I mean, it's forty five foot um, header, 
moving it like three I mean, and a half. You're cutting a 45 foot swath. 45 foot swath at a time, yeah. It's, Dude, you'd mow a lawn so fast. Oh that boy, thing. it'd be quick. We can, we cut lawn. 600 <laughs> acres in, you know, just in, under a couple hours. It was, it's pretty amazing. When it's humming, and we have three machines going, three combines and a grain cart and, uh, we can just flat out knock it out. Is it getting hauled to a silo or is it going right to semi-trucks? We have two different things. You'll haul to grain silos, yeah, commercial operations, and or we'll bin it, and uh, they speculate on prices and stuff like that. We can wheat stores for quite a while. So it uh, just depends on where it's going, what it is. So, and you said, I think we talked about it before, that you kind of do it for therapeutic reasons. Oh, right? man, it gets me out of the city. And uh, away from the pizza business, away from the pizza business. So, yeah. instead of like yoga and surf camp, some of these wheat farmers might want to look into selling, like, uh, oh, wheat, yeah, dudes wheat, going to yoga, wheat, you, wheat, dudes yeah. going to yoga retreats, yeah, they should go cut wheat, yeah, cut they wheat should. For a week. It is very therapeutic. I mean, you spend it's, it's, I don't want to sell it short, it's a grind. I mean, we cut from you know. You wake up at six and you're servicing machines by seven thirty, and then you're generally cutting by around nine, and you work all day. And they, the cool thing is dinner in the field. And uh, also, you get these, you know, the cooler shows up at around noon with your You're lunch in it. You're just shit faced up in that thing. <laughs> no, shit faced up. Oh. That wouldn't. Oh, be. not that kind of cooler. Lunch cooler. Lunch cooler. <laughs> Sam. Yeah, they, yeah, getting shit house might not go over too well. There's really expensive gear, but uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, and you know, dinner comes around, and you cut until dark. And then generally, the rule is uh, once the, you know, these machines all have fantastic light arrays. You could work all night if you wanted to. And uh, generally, we just fill up all the machines at once it gets dark. Dark. That's when we just like all right, just fill up the semis, and then we tarp them off overnight. And uh, that's generally the end of the day. But you'll generally cut from nine a.m. to generally around ten thirty, eleven. PM. So it's it gets things start moving kind of wavy after you know twelve hours or so. But yeah, man, you need great. to do like later on. You have to do like a memoir about wheat cutting. No, oh, I love it. I really do. And then, you know the scenery is pretty cool. And I mean, uh, you know it's it's a climate controlled you know environment. You're sitting in air conditioning with an air chair, and you have XM radio. And, and I download. You know I've listened to. 40 podcasts in but it still doesn't you know we did we cut for 130 plus hours in 10 days i mean it's it's, it's definitely a grind you close your eyes when you hit the sheets and you open them and it's time to go again it's just like you don't even feel like you get a break for real so then at the end of the year they just cut you big badass check and you walk out well we'll see about the badass part but we yeah i definitely get comp drive off in a brand new truck gold yeah, teeth. i wish i wish <laughs> No, it's good. They're super nice people, and they've been, you know, I was a total greenhorn, and it's like I'm the city guy showing up playing farmer, and so they're, you know, they're nice enough to, A, trust me, and B, I take instruction. I can learn pretty much anything pretty quick, and, you know, they're like, hey, do this, do that, and they literally just kind of throw you to the wolves, man. They're like, all right, here you go. Don't wreck it, because it's really expensive, <laughs> <laughs> and then I take it from there. It's great. It's been it's been really fantastic learning experience, and I've met a lot of fantastic people, and, and uh, farmers, I think, are some of the best people we got. So, yeah, it's been, it's been fantastic. I really enjoy it. And then Tuesday, you head back, cut more wheat. Tuesday, I go back. Yeah, I got a, my trucks at the, like I said, my trucks at the Great Falls Airport right now. Just got to go, and get right back after it and i think it's probably another 10 days to two weeks and then we'll probably drink some beer and eat some steaks when it's all said and done so yeah it's been great i just like i said i love it just the nicest people and amazingly uh resilient and 
just something breaks, you don't just, you're 60 miles from anything. So it's not like you can just, I mean, guys know how to weld. They can, you know, this guy that I work with, you know, Josh and, and his brother-in-law, Brandon, they can literally fix anything like on the fly, like this crazy bracket broke on the combine. I was driving and this guy, Brandon, uh, had a new one fabbed up, installed in like an hour and a half, like just, Oh yeah, I got that. They're just, they're that kind of people. And when stuff goes south, we had a big fire, um, on the farm adjacent to ours, which is like a, just a disaster, right? You know, you watch your whole year's work go up and smoke. Oh, wheat fire. Wheat fire. And it's 95 degrees and there's a 15 mile an hour wind. I mean, it is astonishing how fast a fire will move and how dangerous it is. But like, our wheat is still standing, still standing wheat. And there's actually some cut. There's this lay down, it's like swath. I'm not exactly sure the technique for harvesting, but so basically it's just like it's laid down in these long rows, just tinder dry, and it's just massive amount of fuel for the fire. And uh, I mean, everybody drops everything from like a three mile radius. And everybody, you have to have a, you know, we have these big, we drag a disker behind a tractor and we have a fire rig set up with a, you know, a massive container of water with a pump, like a legit fire set up. And everybody just drops what they're doing. And it's like all hands on deck. Everybody shows up and puts out their neighbor's fire. It's really, it's really astonishing to see how everybody comes together. It's pretty cool. So, that is nice. Yeah, no, it's solid. Their people are, they're just good. Salt of the earth, just awesome folks. Any so other weak questions? Like here, no, 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 no. But if here in Seattle, if a if a competitor down the road, if another pizza guy down the road's place was burning down, <laughs> you'd just be like. <laughs> <laughs> I'd lend a hand. <laughs> I would. We're all in it together. I like, I like to think so. Yeah. All right. Our other guest, Mike Rule. Mike, tell tell everybody what, what what your story is, what you do for a living. So I'm the native fish program manager for the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish. And people are thinking New Mexico has fish. <laughs> they do. When I uh, <laughs> when I when I moved into that job, I thought, man, this is probably going to be easy. I don't think there's really any water in New Mexico, but. Uh, Turns out that's not true. There's there's water in quite a few places and uh, a whole lot of uh, native fish that are are pretty unique to that part of the world. But if you were to weigh up like tonnages, okay, let's say let's say you had a giant pile that had all of the non-native fish in New Mexico, and then next to it was a giant pile with all the native fish of New Mexico. Which pile is bigger? Wow, that's a tough one. That is, I prob- probably non-native fish. The bigger pile, yeah, based based mostly on Reservoir. on the reservoirs that we have. Yeah, yeah. Why why do reservoirs tend to suck so bad for native fish? Well, I mean, it, it's certainly not always true that they're bad for native fish, but but it's like you know, it just seems like everywhere you go, when you go to a reservoir, oftentimes you're fishing fish that aren't from the area. Yeah, so I mean, definitely a couple of things at play. One, it's not it's not the historic habitat that's there. You know, those native fish evolved in those in rivers mostly, and then you put a dam on the river and you create a lake, and so that's that's just not what they're adapted to. Gotcha. Yeah. And then, of course, the other thing is you know the introduction of of non native fish, both intentionally and accidentally, over the years, and including you know non native fish that we uh, that we like to fish for. Yeah, because there's probably a big thing with uh, you deal with the non-natives that that you want, and there's the non-natives you don't want. I think it, like where I grew up in the Great Lakes, 
the non-natives you don't want are getting almost as numerous as the non-natives people did want. Like, yeah, I mean, I like I, all these like all the car gobies, right? Right. All these things that completely rewrite the landscape. The deleterious non-natives. At the same time, they're also trying to like establish more and more of the ones they, you know, five species of or four species of Pacific salmon in the Great Lakes. That's a tremendous amount of money that goes into putting those fish in there. Yeah, and you know, I'd I'd like to think anyway we're mostly done in most places trying to establish new populations of non-native fish. Um, but of course, you're right. You know, salmon and and other fish to support them that got established in the Great Lakes are a thing. Um, you're saying that mostly, like, we as a culture are mostly done trying to establish non-native fisheries. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think here in the United States, for sure, that's true. I don't know about elsewhere right? in the world. I think for the most part. I mean, that doesn't mean that we don't continue to support some non-native fisheries, but, but as far as, uh, you know, bringing in a lot of new non-native fish at least in the public waters um that's lower that's low priority yeah you know i'm not familiar certainly not in new mexico with you know with uh efforts to do that yeah to like get more walleye going or more whatever going right yeah you know a thing we want to talk about is um like i think i think a lot a lot of people that hunt fish don't realize is how wildlife management gets funded um and i'm going to set this up real quick then you you then after i get done setting it up you take you uh go with or don't go with you can you can like say where i was wrong or right sure but in so if you were to look at american history um in a, in a wildlife perspective we came in you might say like euro-american culture european culture came to the u.s what's now the U.S., and we spent a couple hundred years almost systematically, but not quite intentionally, depopulating wildlife in the country to the point where we got to around the turn of the century, the early 1900s, and we'd kind of uh, almost wiped out virtually everything. And then at that time, there was a big push to try to find a way to recover game animals and one of the biggest things that happened there's two stages in recovering wild wildlife in america there's like two stages that happened to it well let's for our purpose we'll say there's three stages one of the stages was setting aside land and habitat okay and and theodore roosevelt kind of ran point on that idea just like establishing landscapes where there could where there you would have if there what where you're creating land that if there were animals, that's where the animals would be, setting aside habitat. Um, another stage in this was trying to stop the bleeding, which was basically a war against market hunters. So trying to de-incentivize or otherwise make illegal the raping and pillaging of the land and water by people who were collecting animals to sell, be it for the feather trade wild meat wild fish so that was another step that we had to take was to stop market hunters and the third step was to build stuff back up again eventually the question comes up right how are we going to pay for wildlife recovery in 
this country. And one of the first things, well, kind of like the, one of the big things that, that happened in wildlife recovery happened in 1930s, right? And it was originally called the Wildlife Restoration Act? Yeah, the, I mean, they, the, the two acts that you're going to talk about, I think, you know, that we commonly refer to as Pittman-Robertson and Dingle-Johnson are actually, Pittman-Robertson is the Wildlife Restoration Act and Dingle-Johnson is the Sportfish Restoration Act. We, we often... Uh, put those two things together and call them the Wildlife and Sportfish Restoration Acts. In fact, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has offices that we shorten even further and call them the WISFER offices, uh, short for Wildlife and Sportfish Restoration. And those are the offices that administer those those federal excise taxes. But the the portion of that that became Pittman-Robertson happened much earlier. That's a good question. You're you're probably actually more familiar with the the intimate history of the acts that, than I am. You know, my knowledge kind of starts with they came into existence in 1937 and then have been amended various times. Look that up, Yanni. Throughout history. Regardless of what is the gap, I, I, let me quick, let me like, real quick lay out just the, the 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 background on it. So, Franklin Roosevelt. He goes around, like, he had a big conservation bent, like Theodore did. And, and Franklin Roosevelt goes around, and he, and, and in the 30s, he's going around, and this is like the, you know, during the Great Depression. He's going around explaining there's this rod and gun clubs around the country, people who are interested in, in, in hunting and fishing. He's going around and explaining to them, if, so, if this is going to happen, if we're going to recover American wildlife, you guys are going to have to do it. And they come up with this idea that we're going to put an excise tax on guns and ammunition and hunting equipment to the tune of like 10 or 11%. And the sportsmen who are going to be paying the tax, it's a very targeted tax just on people to hunt. And they're overwhelmingly enthusiastic about it. The industry people, the people who are producing guns and ammunition, who are going to theoretically lose sales due to the fact that their goods are not going to be 10 or 11% more expensive, are enthusiastic supporters of this Wildlife Restoration Act idea. And the thing goes from introduction to the president's signature in 90 days. Now, the Affordable Care Act took over a year to give you a sense of like how quickly this thing went through with overwhelming support. And it wound up that they're just taking... When you buy guns and ammo, you get taxed on it. That tax, we're going to talk about how this works. That money is the money that went into recovering American wildlife. Yeah, right. It's, it's what's called a user pay system. So, you know, it's, it's in sportsmen's best interest to have healthy wildlife and fish populations in the landscape. And in order to... To foster that, the idea was that the users would help to pay for it. Meaning that it's going to favor, well, we'll get into that. The criticism that it just favors game animals. Yeah, and, and we, can, we can talk about that at, at any point you want to. Um, the, the reality is the, the acts are a little bit different in, uh, in how they're specifically focused. I mean, the, the, yeah, oh, let, let, yeah let, me, let me clarify, though. The one I'm talking about became Pittman-Robertson, and follow, or following that or not, what'd you find out? 
Oh, sorry. I didn't. You didn't clarify the question, so I didn't. Look what are you talking about? Up. You're supposed to look up. Uh, <laughs> is Dingle John? What year did Dingle Johnson happen? Okay. Now Dingle Johnson is a real strange name. <laughs> D- like Pittman Robertson, you know, you kind of like, right? There's like an austerity to it, right? But Dingle Johnson is just like. Uh, so I would have picked a different name. Well, I think it's personally. It's you know. Just like Pittman Robertson, named after the two sponsors of the bill. Yeah. So. No, no, and God bless him. But I, I just would have said, like, you know, considering that it's Dingle and Johnson, we're going to go, we're gonna go with uh, different names. I, I don't have, expect you to have to have a stated opinion on that. <laughs> but uh, can, can you lay out what? So, like, take it from the perspective of a dude who likes the hunt and fish. What stuff is he buying that is going into these funds? So specifically, what kinds of products? Yeah, like when you buy sporting goods, what exact stuff are you buying that you're paying such a humongous tax that's both, that then goes into wildlife funding? Like what's on the list? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a uh, there's a huge list of things. It, it it really largely comes down for for Pittman Robertson. A lot of it is guns and ammunition. Um, it's archery equipment reloading supplies i believe archery equipment is in there yes yep um some gunsmithing i believe if gunsmiths are actually building guns um muzzle loaders so it, it's it's really you know most of the common things that we think but of. not backpacks and stuff no that's it's got more it's super specific yeah that's right and then what is it in the fishing end of things so, um, you know, fishing is, is pretty similar in that it's, it's the things that you would think of. It's, it's rods and reels and, and lures. Um, so the very specific stuff. Right. The, the one that's pretty important to sport fish that most folks don't know about is that, that there's an excise tax on boat fuel. So, uh, yeah, but boat fuel is just, fu- I mean, unleaded gas. Yeah, that's correct. But depends on where it's sold. Exactly. And I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how they, calculate what counts as boat fuel you know if uh, there's some small percentage of all the fuel that's sold that's considered to be boat fuel or if it's just what's sold on marina docks for instance or or close to reservoirs but but there's a substantial portion of of uh, what comes through the sport fish restoration act is is uh, coming from boat gas. yeah i mean it's an important component yeah so the i know that the Pittman robertson funds that right now, so again, right now when you go out and buy guns, ammunition, all this kind of stuff, reloading stuff, archery equipment, muzzle loading stuff, you're paying a heavy ass tax on those goods. And right now, I think on average now, it raises about a billion dollars a year. Go into that fund. Yeah, I think the gonna gonna go into government speak here, the fiscal year um twenty seventeen, I believe. $780 million is the number that I got in front of me coming through just through Pittman-Robertson, just through the wildlife restoration. $780 million Yes. From, from one fiscal year. Right. And does that stay pretty steady every year? Um, you know, I, I don't have the history in front of me. It, it, it went up. I think, you know, almost everybody knows the story of, of what happened during the Obama administration. Can I tell but, the story? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So... There's different ways to spin this. I'm going to try to find a way that, that rolls into different spins on it. So, okay. Um, now, this is me talking, not Mike. Uh, Obama, people know, is not like a 
the the gun the, the the firearms industry did not find a kindred spirit in Obama, and uh, there there was a lot of fear throughout the eight years of his preg- his presidency that we would be having some like draconian anti gun measures enacted, and it prompted a lot of people to go out and buy firearms and buy ammo for fear that their right to do so might be infringed upon in the very near future. And it caused a like a legit gun rush. I think that handgun sales went up 500% under his administration. Some pe- and so all that gun buying, some people called him, um, jokingly called him you know, America's best gun salesman. And then other people talked about his conservation legacy because it blew up. Pittman Robertson funding because every time someone goes out and buys a handgun for home defense by the way this law is written 10 or 11% of that purchase price goes into funding wildlife so it was like the good old days for 8 years and then gun purchases with the the new administration coming in gun purchases plummeted almost instantaneously so I think now there's some austere times coming yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, we haven't. It'll be, it'll be fiscal year eighteen when when uh, when we see those new numbers. But whether yeah, because the the real big driver on that is guns and ammunition. I mean, as far as like the percentages go. So yeah, because 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 Obama fueled such a gun buying frenzy, he fueled like some major conservation spending. I even saw where one magazine, like a very pro Obama magazine, had it be like um, as sort of building in it as part of his. Conserv- like I said, his conservation legacy, even though it's completely like the Department of Unintended Consequences, right? It was like not the goal. If that was the goal and you were that shrewd of a poker player, I have to like hand it to you. If, if you're like, well, how could I get more money to fund wildlife? I know what I'll do. I'll act like I'm going to get rid of guns, but not really. That's shrewd. No one plays that kind of poker. You got no yeah, comment. I got no. I mean, I got no comment. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. I, just, I would just say that it's been a good thing for for conservation funding. Yeah. So okay, so there's 780 million. Now, how much comes up from the taxes on fishing gear? You got that? Yeah. So it's it's about 350 million less. Yeah. But there's twice as many fishermen. Yeah, you, you know, because like fishermen are like. Uh, I was having this conversation the other day. Um. Twice as many people buy fishing licenses, but they're not obs- they're not as obsessive, right? There's there's more weekend folks that that don't don't fish year round, like you know, like people who are real dedicated with hunting. Yeah, like when you talk when you talk about hunting and fish, like hunter numbers in America and fisher numbers in America, well, all they're looking at is uh, they're just looking at who bought a license. What happens after the guy buys the license? You have no idea. So you count up and be like, I can't remember what it is. There's 30 million, like, I don't know, some years, I think like around 30 million Americans buy a fishing license. But they could be buying three day licenses in order to go out, you know, one time. Right. So they're like twice as many fishermen are only paying half as much excise taxes on stuff. Yeah. Um, fishing rods like 100 bucks, so on a rifle's 1,000 bucks, right? So yeah. maybe it's just a question of ticket price. Could be. Maybe. So there, so that money, um, so we got like what you're buying that pays this stuff. And this is something everybody has to do. Wh- where does that, like, what's the path that money takes? 
in order to then go into like actual fish and wildlife spending? Yeah, so um, I guess you know one thing to note there is is that that the, the excise tax is in the price that you see, you know, on oh, the, list the gun price. rack, right? Yeah, you don't get like an itemized bill that shows right. that part of it. Yeah, if, if you walk up to the counter and they charge a tax, that's not the tax that we're talking about. It, it's already built into the price of the item. Um, so that money essentially goes into uh, a pot of money that is administered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And then from there... Do the pots get blended or do the pots stay separate? They stay separate. The, the hunting pot and the fishing pot go to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but they stay hunting and fishing. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there, are, different, there are different rules for both pots of money um, in terms of how things get doled out to the states and, and territories and the District of Columbia. Um, so they stay separate, and then... Uh, essentially what happens is the Fish and Wildlife Service runs their formula for how much each state is going to get from each program every year. What's that? I want to talk about that, but what would you find out? Did you find it out? 1950. Dingle Johnson. Yeah. So quite like some odd year, 12 years, 13 years later. Here's another thing to look up. Do you remember when a guy told us how much uh, Federal and Savage when they have to cut their check, their Pittman-Robertson check, uh, there's uh, a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, I don't know if I was there for that conversation, though. No, you were on the email. I'll find it. Um, okay. I'll look. Yeah, some guy was telling us, like, what a company like that, Federal Ammunition, how, many, how much ammo they sell. It's got to be a lot. Oh, yeah, at the end of the year, you write a check for tens and tens of millions of dollars. Just think about how much federal I shoot every year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so how do yeah, What is the goal? Like, how do you how do you calculate that out? Like, what are they looking at to say like, okay, here's what states get what? Is it how many dudes hunting fish there? Yeah, that's part of it. Um, like I said, they're they're a little bit different at at their heart. They are both about two things. One is land area. So how big the state is, and the other is how many licensed buyers there are. Okay. Um, you know, there, there's a little bit of complexity and nuance, and we could we could spend a week talking about that. But for Wildlife Restoration Act, um, it's 50% land area, and it's 50% number of paid licensed hunters. Now, so who are the big winners there? Well, I you know I got to imagine I could I could look at the list, but you know I have to imagine a state like Texas, which has a huge land area and a huge number of hunters, would would really come out high. But there is an additional rule in there, which is that no state can receive more than five percent of the total or less than one. Oh, I got you. So it it keeps it from from you know having one state really dominate. I grew up in Pennsylvania. That Pennsylvania would probably be another one that, if if you base anything off the number of of licensed hunters in a state, you know, would would really get a big share. Oh yeah, because they are Pennsylvania often buys for like the hunting estate. Yeah, not I, per capita, but just total numbers of licenses. Right. So I, you always hear like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Texas. Yeah, they they used to say when when I was a kid, you know, they said there there were a million people 
in the woods on the first day of rifle deer season every year. So I, I had I had looked it up recently. Um, I, I believe in the last couple of years they fell below a million licenses sold, but but that million number is a threshold that that not many places. I I think Texas. I think for a couple of years ago, five to ten years ago, maybe Pennsylvania was was number one right there, and now it's fallen behind to Texas a little falling bit. Falling behind Texas. Yeah. So did you say, again, just to back up, did you say it winds up being how many people buy a hunting license or how many people live in the state? No, it's how many people buy a license. It is a number of paid licensed hunters. So it's land area, 50% land area, and 50% number of licensed hunters. So then they take the big giant pool of money, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does, or they're the three quarters of a billion dollars, 800 million, whatever it is. They take that, and then they run their calculation, and they wind up saying, let's use New Mexico. They wind up saying, okay, here's New Mexico's chunk. And what is New Mexico's chunk? This is all public information. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can, uh, I mean, if you, if you do a, a web search for, Sport Fish and Wildlife Restoration Acts, you'll you'll end up at at the Fish and Wildlife Service um, website, and and all of this is is readily available. Yeah, yeah. So, New Mexico. Um, make sure I'm on the right line in the table here. Looks like fifteen million dollars, fifteen and a half million dollars in fiscal year seventeen for. From the Wildlife Restoration Act, so from Pittman Robertson, and w- and what from the fishing? I think it's about it's six six point one, so twenty one and a half million combined. And so the feds then they don't just like turn around and write you a check for twenty one and a half million and say go for it. Yeah, and, and so this this was really one of the things that I wanted to talk about. You know. We talked a little bit about the history of the act, and and like I mentioned, I'm you know I'm not the the greatest student of that history. I'm I come at this more from a, a pragmatic standpoint of of how we do this and how the money really works and how it flows and and where it goes. And so, what happens is the states write grants. I mean, we know how much money is is going to be granted to us or how much money is available for those grants. But we write grants to But you know like but you know you're gonna get it. We know we know we're gonna get it. I mean the the Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, reviews the grants to ensure that the projects meet the rules that the acts put in place. Yeah. You know, so there's a, a process step there that has to be done. But uh, we, you know, we still have to write the grants, and then we report to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at the end on what we did with the money. Um, but you know, one of the the real interesting nuances of how this works is that both programs, as well as some other federal grant programs, are reimbursement programs. So the state, while while we do write a grant, and the Fish and Wildlife Service does come back hopefully and say yes you know go ahead you can spend money on that the state spends the money first and then once we've spent it we apply for reimbursement well where do you get in the first place so almost all of that 
money in, especially in a state like New Mexico, comes from the sale of hunting and fishing licenses. So the license buyer pays for the projects up front and then gets reimbursed for a portion of the money that has already been spent. Can you real quick name, like, can you real quick give people a sense of what these projects are? Well, I mean, that's, it's tough because they're, they're really broad in, in, uh, scope and scale. Um, we use the money to do all kinds of things. Habitat restoration is, is one thing. Um, you know, both for, for fish and wildlife. Um, you know, we do surveys, we monitor populations of, of fish and wildlife statewide. Um, on the fishery side of things, we do things like operate our state fish hatcheries using this money. Uh, specifically in the, the program that I work in, we do, we, we work with our native fish, or particularly our native trout, both Gila trout and Rio Grande cutthroat trout are, uh, considered sport fish. So even though Gila trout's listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act, we're still able to use Dingle Johnson money to work on it. So it, it is to do research and habitat improvement. Right. To try to recover the fish. Yeah. Yeah. And so to a large degree, it covers most of the breadth of the biology stuff that the agency does and so you know i do want to i don't want to move on before i mention one thing which is that most states work like new mexico where almost all of our revenue comes through license sales there yeah, are like you're not like you're like you're not getting money just from the general taxpayer in new mexico that's right and and most states work that way there there are exceptions i believe missouri and arkansas are two exceptions that that while, of course, they still get money through license sales, they also get other monies, tax, sales tax revenue or general fund monies. But most states um, are like us. And, you know, we, we say that we're an enterprise agency, which essentially means that we generate our own revenue. Yeah, I had read somewhere that, so the country has 50 state fish and game agencies, obviously. And I read somewhere that their budgets, so... All of the work that, that goes into wildlife at a state level, which basically all states, every state manages virtually all the wildlife in their state, with some exceptions when you get into like things that are listed as endangered species, but states manage their own wildlife. And across the board, like all states' budgets, all the money they use for wildlife, game and non-game, so just like all wildlife in the state, is paid for. 60 to 60 to 90%, depending on which state, is paid for by people buying hunting and fishing licenses or by people paying taxes on hunting and fishing gear. Like the hunters and anglers foot the whole thing, virtually. The, the hunters and anglers, through buying licenses, certainly foot a big proportion of it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have an agency-wide number like that. I mean... There, there are things that you can pay for using sport fish and wildlife restoration act monies. We call those reimbursable expenses and other things that you can't. So you can't reimburse for law enforcement expenses. And obviously that's a substantial component of what a lot of, you know, agencies do. 
Um, so you're actually paying game wardens. You can't use federal funds for that. Right, that's correct. That's got to come out of your license sales. It does. And so one of the other things that the acts prohibit are really anything that generates revenue. So we can't use the money to sell licenses. So the the staff and the infrastructure and everything else that's actually selling licenses is not reimbursable expenses. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. I've been using OnX for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without OnX. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Hey man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. 
I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. And I want to I want to get back to the to just to, to the, the to the part you're talking about where you're doing paying out of pocket and then applying for grants. But just real quick, a, a thing, a, a problem that used to happen that this corrected is it used to be that states would some states would the state fish and game agency would make money. They would raise funds by selling hunting and fishing licenses, but then the states would pilfer those accounts and. If you if a state removes hunting and fishing license revenue from its state fish and game agency, doesn't the state then become ineligible for the federal money? Like there's rules that come with the federal money. There there are and and uh you know we call it the anti-diversion portion of the bill. So um the acts basically say what you just said, which is that if a state is to be eligible to receive the money they cannot transfer that license sale money outside of the agency to do other unrelated things. So they can't divert the money for other purposes. They can't take it and put it, you know, in their general fund to be spent on roads or something. Yeah. It, it yeah. Has so your so your license money stays on mission. Right. Which is really I mean, that was a, a absolutely brilliant thing to build into the acts. That's what I was just thinking. It's like, man, they really like nailed the like the game plan with it, this one. Yeah, and then Greg Blasfitz, his favorite part of it is, is if the money doesn't get used in two years, it just gets rolled into migratory birds, I think. Yeah. He likes that little final button on it. Yeah, he I, I actually just <laughs> listened to that episode again and you know, I was I was thinking about that one this morning actually, that that if folks wanted to, that would be a great one to to listen to before this to kind of, you know, start thinking about why that revenue is important, you know, yeah. before you sort of get into the mechanics of, of how it all works. So how crippling is it that you guys got to pay up front and then get reimbursed later? Why, don't they, why can't they just give you the money up front? Well, I, you know, I don't... Like, well, I, how do they expect that you have the money? I think that agencies, I mean, I think this has been going on, I don't know the early history with agencies, but I think this has been going on so long at this point that agencies are, you know, have just learned to plan for this um, as it as it currently stands. Uh, you know, I, I think New Mexico Department of Game and Fish is, is doing just fine with that. But just like moving the money around. Yeah. Yeah. Like taking money that everything would go for doing a project where that you're going to get it back later. And then you can use when you get it back, you can use it for things that the federal funds aren't eligible for. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure that that, that, that that's exactly right. That it's, it's not necessarily that we wait to get it back and then use it for things that it's not eligible for. I think it just all comes back into, you know, our, our big fund when it comes back. Yeah. So walk me through the process of like I like how walk me through the pro, like follow a dollar right. So there's a dollar in this pool. How does it come that that dollar winds up going to to to, to fish and wildlife? Like well, in in a case scenario, like something you've been involved in. So once it gets to the agency, yeah, like I'm saying, like like wh- like walk me through the process of of a state identifying some thing they'd like to do. 
Right. So, so we say, Hey, we have a Rio Grande cutthroat trout project that we want to work on. Um, here's what it is. We write up the grant. We send the grant to fish and wildlife service. They come back and say, okay, you're approved. And, um, how long does that take? You know, it depends. Um, usually a couple months. I mean, there's, there's kind of grant cycles that are, that are tied with these things that, that, you know, most, most folks understand what they are and, and when things need to be turned in to, to fit in the, both the state and the federal fiscal year. Um, so they, they usually turn them around pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, and so then once we get approval, you know, there's the grant code set up and, uh, if you go work on that Rio Grande Cutthroat Trout Restoration Project, um, you come back and you report that time that you worked or if you buy stuff for the project or whatever it is, um, you report it that way. And then we have a federal aid office, so New Mexico Department of Game and Fish employees who, who work on this stuff full-time, financial specialists. Um, they gather all that information up. They send it to the Fish and Wildlife Service you know, to document that the agency spent the money and then the Fish and Wildlife Service sends back the reimbursement portion, um, which for both sport fish and wildlife is, is 75%. So we get reimbursed. Oh, that's all, they don't pay back 100%. No, no, we get reimbursed for 70, mm. excuse me, 75% of the cost. So is it competitive or do the, do like, does this, is there some bigger hand at the state level? that says like, okay, we have $15 million to work with here. Let's figure out how we're going to spread this around. Are you competing? Are your grants competing against other people within the state? In that sense, um, it, it's all, it's all within our agency. So, you know, you could, you could view it as there is some competition in that way where, you know, upper level management, like, the chiefs from fisheries and wildlife and uh, the other divisions, you know, would, would talk about the projects that, that are on the docket and, and how they're going to spend that money. Now, of course, because the acts are separate, because one's for sport fish and one's for wildlife, generally the wildlife division is going to decide how to spend their portion of it. And they do that in consultation with, with, you know, our, our administration, our, director um so so by that i mean like let's say you know there's 15 million available mm -hmm. they're not sending over 25 million grant requests to the fish and wildlife service yeah they're no. sending over 15 million in grant requests we work that out internally yeah that's okay that's it. so all right so you're never like fighting against the guy down the hall no all right not at you got to go make your case right at the at, for at the, the state level yes that's correct yeah so what was the next part of that now I interrupted you about that. I don't know where we were. Seventy-five percent reimbursement. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Like, how's that come up? That it's like won't do one hundred. Well, I mean, I I think that that the idea is that the state is vested in its own projects. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we ultimately are still. I mean, we're accountable right up front in spending the money, but you know. I think it's, it's also a, right. It's also a mechanism, you know, by which we own a portion of of what's been spent, and you know, I, we have a lot of pride in the projects that that we do. So, what is it with? I noticed when you're talking about this, you're saying wildlife 
but then sport fish. So Pittman Rock, again, like it just in lingo, just for the listener, in lingo, we've come to talk about the Wildlife Restoration Act is known Pittman Robertson, because that's like two people that uh, who, whose name were applied to the bill, like two people pushed for the bill. That's game and non-game animals. Yeah, so wildlife is defined by the act as birds and mammals. So why is the fishing one sport fish? That's a good question. I mean, um, so if there's like a chub that people don't regard as a native chub that people don't regard as a sport fish, you can't use that money on it. It has to be a sport fish. Yeah, that's right. And so there, that seems kind of like, um, it seems like, uh, not quite cynical, but it seems like a little bit where you're, you're opening yourself up for, um, some pretty heavy criticism. Well, you know, there, I mean, there's even there, there's a couple nuances. One is that, that, uh, the state has some role in defining a sport fish. Okay. So, you know, there are places where roundtail chub are considered sport fish. Uh, not in New Mexico, but, but there are places. Um, I believe, I believe Arizona defines roundtail chub. They list chub. it as a sport yeah. fish. Um, the other thing is when, when we go out and do work for, sport fish and some sport fish are native you know i mentioned i mentioned the two trout species and and actually you know down in in southeast new mexico there's there's a lot of native fish there's largemouth bass and other things down there um but when we go out and do surveys even if they're sport fish surveys we're almost always learning something about the fish community as a whole so even though the work may be focused on sport fish there are ancillary benefits to other native fish, yeah, non-game fish. Got you. And then, you so know, it's not totally discriminatory against non-game. No, not totally. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> well, and I would think if you're studying habitat, then you know whatever you learn well, about habitat, it's going to be beneficial to all. Exactly. Or or doing habitat improvement projects are right. you know often good for everything. And and so a. a a big chunk of what what happens with my team and my program is is uh, is done through other federal aid grant programs that are similar have similar mechanics uh, but different sources of of funding. Give me a for instance. So there's really two programs that we use all the time. Um, there is some funding that comes through the Fish and Wildlife Service to work on endangered species. Endangered Species Section Six funding, um, and so you know one of the hot button issues that we're working on right now. We also in my program work on aquatic invertebrates. Yep, um, we're working with a, a native mussel called the Texas horn shell. There's a, a lot of uh, things swirling around right now with listing for that animal. Like that, it'll get threatened or endangered. Yeah, it's actually they're about to publish the final rule, and so we've been. Uh, We've been working on, on uh, one, getting the, the best understanding that we can of what's going on with it. We've also been trying out some, some new conservation approaches to try to repatriate it to some historic habitat uh, places where it's not currently found. And then we've also been working with the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and uh, private landowner and, and uh, business 
folks to uh, to work on what's called a candidate conservation agreement with assurances. Um, it's essentially a conservation agreement that folks can enter into before an animal gets listed, so that to try to head off getting listed. Well, it's not. It's not that particular agreement's not necessarily so much about the animal not getting listed as it is about laying out what will happen if it does. Okay. So that mussel lives in the Permian Basin, and if you Google search the Permian Basin, the thing that you'll see pop up is probably about oil and gas development. Okay. And so, you know, those businesses are interested in understanding what will happen and 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 so through this process they get assurances about what's going to happen if the animal gets listed and, and they, they probably get real interested in having it not get listed well you know i, I mean like as far as like supporting the the paying for biology or they, no yeah well they i mean through through this program they support conservation by paying into a fund to to ultimately help recover the animal if it gets listed or continue to to work on it as it goes through the process. What? What? Tell me about the animal, the one you're talking about right now. Texas hornshell. Yeah. Um. You know, it's, it's a, a mussel. It's a. It's. I believe it's the only remaining freshwater mussel in New Mexico. It it lives uh, in the Black River, which is a tributary to the to the Pecos River in southeastern New Mexico. Uh, it's got an interesting life history in that it it lives up under these mud banks that overhang the river and under rock ledges and stuff. So um, it's actually kind of fun to go sample for it. You jump in the river and and swim around the banks and, and feel up under the banks trying to uh, trying to find a thing. And How big are they? They get up to, I don't know, I'd, I'd say maybe five inches the long way across the shell. And it looks like a, like a kind of mossy you'd get in a restaurant? It looks kind of like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bivalve yeah. mussel, you know, Similar to what folks would be familiar with there. And why are they suffering? Are they intolerant of pollution? Um, you know, water quality is an issue, and of course, water quantity is an issue as okay. well. Or, so you drawing know, water off lowers water levels, and that screws them. Yeah, it if uh, if water levels drop below where they uh, where they live up under the banks, they don't they don't fare so well. Got you. So let's say you identify. Um, I mean you specifically, but kind of like address this as you as in just people that work at state fish and game state fish and game agencies. You identify a thing like let's say with the, with this muscle. You're like, man, if I had, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, I could there's this idea I'd really like to try. What is it like when you go and present how competitive is it when you go within agency to present your plan? Like, do you have to have your shit dialed in when you go in to present your idea because it's a competitive environment? It's more of a negotiation, I would say, than a competition. Okay. We we talk about all the priorities that the agency may have for using that funding, and you know, I mean, I would know we're 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 really we're talking about when we talk about sport fish restoration act money, you know, millions of dollars. It, it's bounced up and down a little bit, but the ESA Section 6 funding is has been around $200,000 in federal money a year. So much, much smaller pot of money. Um, and the other program that I wanted to mention is the State Wildlife Grant Program. Uh, 
if you look, most states have what's called a state wildlife action plan, which is a plan that uh, they develop in concert with the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, and that's tied to a, another grant program. That that is more. Um, I I believe it's currently in the like eight hundred thousand dollar a year neighborhood. Okay. So for non game fish and invertebrates, those are two pots of money that we draw on. What funds those? Where, like, where does that money come from? They're they're money from Congress tax revenue. Okay. Money. So that's the general pool money. Yeah. So w- when you have an idea, you're not in there like fighting the guy down the aisle. No. I don't know why I'm obsessed with this idea. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I, mean, I just think there's got to be a lot of people that want the money. There, I mean, there, there is. There, you know, to some degree, there's there's long-standing programs that money goes to. Yeah, like year some guy's year. pissed because he's got some glamorous thing that draws in all the money. That doesn't happen. Well, I mean, like all oh, those sheep, those desert bighorn sheep guys sure gobble up a lot of money. But see, those those folks can use Pittman Robertson money. So they're not, you know, in, not a direct in these more limited pools. Right, so is it that those trout guys gobble up a lot of money? Well, I mean, again, th- that would be that would be DJ money eligible. So it's it's really a smaller group of folks in the agency that work on things that are not reimbursable um, against PR and DJ money. Yeah, and. And I guess I, I've honestly never thought much about this. Maybe it's in part because my team gets a lot of that, a lot of that funding. You know, on the wildlife side, um, the herpetology stuff, reptiles and amphibians. You know, they they use that money as well. And then, you know, with uh, so particularly for that's particularly true for the ESA funding for the state wildlife grant funding. We have uh, another division called. Uh, Ecological and environmental planning, um, and that division also works with a lot of state wildlife grant money. But I, you know, I I feel like those lines are relatively clearly drawn, and and you know there is conversation and negotiation every year about how that money is going to be spent. But it's you know it's <laughs> it's not uh, it's not gladiatorial. Yeah, I got you. So do you feel like you're well funded all in all? I do. Really? Yeah. I, I so mean, here's a government guy that's not going to complain to me about he doesn't get enough money. No, I. You know, I. You got, I you're able to do what you need to do. I think that that we currently absolutely have as many projects going, um, as many fully funded projects going as as we could do. You know, if if we had more folks in the program, we could take on more stuff. But but right now we're we're very busy doing a number of projects across the state. Jimmy Dorn, you got any questions up to this point? None. Just everything's been answered. Just kind of sitting. What's the part that you thought was the most interesting? Um, basically, <laughs> the breakdown between the amount of money that's gleaned off of sales of firearms. I, I mean, I was just had kind of a not a really strong knowledge and background. I just, I'm just amazed that there's that kind of revenue. Seven hundred fifty million. I was wondering if they put it. I was going to ask if. Money gets put away if it's not all spent, but you said it's rolled into migratory. It's got to be spent on mission. Got to be spent instead of having a nice big war chest somewhere where we got to save it all up. Got to spend it, huh? 
Well, that's good. It seems like it's going to good use, and I like the idea of our funding our own deal. You know, we can't say, how do I say it eloquently? Um, you know, we're paying for what we're getting. Yeah. You know, and that, that strikes home. That's good. But that, so, but that becomes controversial to some people because here's a, like, here's a criticism that you hear floated around. And Mike, you might speak to this or not. Um, the criticism being that they'll even use, like, like a fishing game agency, you'll hear their language of like our customers. Okay. So someone who just, let's say you have a person that doesn't hunt and fish and they live in a state and they enjoy wildlife. Mm-hmm. There is some resentment in some, with some people that the, ma- the agency that's responsible for managing and handling all wildlife in that state mm-hmm. views it as though they're doing it to service a customer base who's actually paying for it. Mm-hmm. Now, I would argue that makes sense to me. These are the people who are funding it, so they should have a bigger say or have their interests served as a higher priority than people who aren't funding it. But some people feel like a state shouldn't be in that situation. They shouldn't be looking at, if your job is to manage wildlife, you shouldn't be doing it through the lens of servicing your customers, meaning of emphasizing or paying special attention to the things that they like to go out and shoot and catch mm-hmm. that they would point to there's inordinate spending on elk turkeys trout walleyes and a lack of attention and a lack of funding and a lack of management brought to horn nose chub muscles <laughs> <laughs> right? right because the customers don't care right or don't care as much. Well, I like that it's broad, that it's not just specific to stuff that we hunt, but it's also the money's just distributed all around. Sounds but they, good to but, me. But, but, uh, but it's not. Like, like a lot of attention is paid to the things that the customers are interested in. Mm. I'm, I'm devil's advocate. I'm just saying that that makes people uneasy when they view it being their customers. It would be like, okay, it would be like this. Imagine you're the governor okay. of a state. Right. You would never say, well, you know, rich people pay a lot more taxes. I'm more interested in doing the kind of stuff that helps rich, rich people, people out. Right. Now, that would not fly well as a campaign rally. No, it would not. Okay. But fish and game agencies, some people feel that a fish and game agency is basically saying that. By managing wildlife mike do you care to speak to this well i mean you know i i not guess, your own opinion but just like would you care to add any flavor or texture well no i i mean you know i i think i think that to some degree that's a misinterpretation of what we do and you know we, like me being the guy complaining like i'm not doing like you, you take you don't agree with that complaint that, that, that that's not a valid complaint i think you know i think i understand where folks are coming from when when they they believe that what we do is manage sport fish and wildlife um you know and that we just do that for a customer and and all that we're doing is trying to increase populations of things that you can hunt and fish for yeah i empathize with that i you know i i think i can see why people might see that but i think that the reality is a lot different and 
you know, that, I mean, that's really why I wanted to come on today was, you know, to, to talk about, you know, how it is that we pay for conservation and, and why, why we manage non-game fish and wildlife. And can you answer, like, can you just answer that in a sentence? Why? Yeah. Is it a mandate? Well, I don't, I don't know that I can answer it in a sentence. Um, I think there's, you know, there's okay, about, big long, a big long bunch of sentences together. Well, there's a, about a half a dozen reasons why we do it. I mean, one, New Mexico, like most states, you know, has in law, in statute, that their fish and game agencies are supposed to manage fish and wildlife. And there may be nuances in how they define those things, but they often include lots of stuff that's not, you know, game or sport fish animals. So that's sort of, you know, first reason there's there's this legal reason right yeah um the second reason we do it and and i but be- let's stop i want to talk sure. about the legal reasons so you're saying a state um has that knowing that the money's going to come from knowing that the money is coming from hunters and fishermen they still like with that bit of knowledge they still have it written in that you have to manage all wildlife I mean, I don't know what the consideration originally was when it went into statute and yeah. in terms of where the funding would come from. But yes, it is, you know, we have a statutory obligation to manage fish and wildlife. And could be sued for not doing it. I, I suppose we could. Yeah. Okay. So there's the legal reason. Right. So, you know, there's, there's the ethical reason. And, and I genuinely believe that this one is important to a lot of people in our agency that, you know, managing ecosystems as a whole, is the right thing to do. Trying to pass on our natural history as intact as possible is the right thing to do. So that's, that's an ethical argument for, for why we do it. And, and you feel that that, that sentiment is, is held, that's like a widespread belief within agencies? I do. Because you guys didn't just all get into it because of a huge paycheck. <laughs> we, we, it's a great, it's a great way to make a living. It really is, but it is, it is uh, not one that necessarily comes with lots of zeros. Yeah, yeah, I got you. So you know, the third reason is the ecological argument, right? So if we want healthy populations of the kind of things that we like to hunt and fish for out in the landscape, they're part of an ecosystem. You, you never know what's going to happen when one thing or another disappears. You, you never know, you know what might cause things to fall apart from an ecosystem level. It's, you know, it's, it's the Aldo Leopold intelligent tinkering quote, right? You know, um, so we want to preserve all the cogs and wheels from an ecological standpoint. So that's you know, reason number three, the, the ecological argument that it's, it's good overall to have healthy functioning ecosystems and all the things that go with them because of the interconnectedness of it all right yeah that's that's what i think about a lot i think a lot of people that hunt fish and look at wildlife through that lens of just like are there a lot of deer around right now or not like was it a good deer season or not because i sat in my deer blind two days and i want to know if i saw more deer last year than the year before like if you have like that limited of a view of wildlife I think that oftentimes you can kind of miss some bigger pictures about things. And we're, we're spending some time talking about this not long ago, where like in the, in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, like we, we were kind of changing in this country 
in the middle of the country were changing some practices of how we were growing grain, okay, and putting tilling up more land and growing more grain and experimenting with new fertilizers that allow us to grow much more grain in places that we hadn't traditionally grown grain. And this went on in the 80s and 90s and kind of rewrote the map on grain production in the U.S. And that caused a massive explosion of snow geese to the point where snow geese populations quadrupled and then went beyond that. All of those snow geese spend their time, they, they summer and nest in the Arctic. And they started to decimate grasslands on the Arctic slope. And another thing that happened from this explosion of snow geese decimating grasslands and leading to the incursion of salt water into, because as they destroy the grass and the rhizomal systems, salt water would come up and entirely change plant communities on the Arctic Slope. And meanwhile, polar bears were figuring out this new resource. And in Hudson's Bay, you had polar bears that are eating hundreds of pounds of snow geese eggs and not eating things that they used to eat before, changing their whole diet around to accommodate or to account for this new resource. So you realize that like some dude tilling ground in North Dakota to grow barley has such wide-reaching effects on wildlife that, yeah, the, like the Aldo Leopold idea that when you pull a lever, it, it's not happening in a vacuum. Like, you're changing many things along with it. Right. And I think a lot of people fail to realize that when they talk about species that are you know, that we'd pay attention to or don't pay attention to. Like, you can't just have this sort of willy-nilly idea that you're just going to let things vanish or trash certain things and not have it be felt in strange, weird ways elsewhere. You know? Yeah. Yeah, ecosystems are, are complex things. and and That are much bigger than you think they are. Much, much bigger. And generally much more complex. Because you can't anticipate. Right. Yeah, like things that, and you have to get over the idea too. I think people have to get over the idea that we're like done making mistakes. There's sort of a cockiness that comes where we laugh about shit we used to do. But right now we're doing, um, we just haven't found out yet. Yeah, you know. We're making big mistakes right now that we'll later realize we're laughably stupid. Well, you know, and I, I mean, I, as a, as a fisheries manager, I, you know, I, I hope that we continue to get better. I mean, you know, we have a lot more science than we did when a lot of things were happening. And, and you know, the introduction of non-native species has been such a big thing in the fisheries world for native fish. And, you know, we talked about it earlier that that those kind of things really are not happening on on the scale. If they're happening at all, they're, they're not happening on the scale that they were. So it's, it's true, 100 years ago, fisheries management was largely about you know, getting fish out in the landscape for people to catch. And that meant, you know, anywhere that you could get a trout from and go stock it, that, that was a good thing, particularly if you could establish new populations. You know, people, people wanted to go to Yellowstone, for instance, and catch eastern brook trout and German brown trout, you know, along with the native fish. But for quite a long time now, you know, 
we've had a sense that that maybe wasn't the best idea. And, you know, we've been working, you know, for the last couple of decades on, on doing the small things that we can to remedy that in, in limited places. Um, so, you know, it's entirely possible that we'll look back in a hundred years and, and find things that, that we did wrong or that we wish we hadn't done. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but I really, I mean, I really hope that we're, you know, that this idea that we want to manage native species and that we want to manage intact ecosystems, I would be surprised if those concepts have changed dramatically in the future. I think the landscape will change to some degree, but I think that we'll still be trying to preserve native species and trying to do the best that we can to, to manage ecosystems. You know, the, <laughs> the other thing I guess that I would say about that is, <clears throat> is that, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, there's a, a quote that I, that I love. Um, he said that in any moment of decision, the best thing that you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing, and the worst thing is nothing at all. Yeah, I don't know about that. No? He said that, but I don't know if I entirely agree with that. <laughs> well, and, and, but so, you know, it's, I, I guess what I would say about that is he, he's talking about the decision-making process, right? Yeah, yeah. So when, when I am not saying, and I want to be clear, is that sometimes doing nothing is the right thing to do. And sometimes we make decisions to do nothing, you know, because we think that's the best thing for the resource. My, my point is that, you know, we are really often faced with problems that are relatively clear, a species that is in decline, right? Yeah. Something that is, is going away. And we want to work to stop that. We want to keep that species on the landscape. So the solutions are not usually nearly as clear as the problem, right? Uh, yeah, I got you. It's often very hard to understand what can I do to make this situation better. But we, we have to make a decision. I mean, we ha- you know, if we want to stop the decline, we have to try to do something. And so I think it's important to consider that the standard can't be that we always get it right 100% of the time. I understand. The standard has got to be that we do the best we can with the information that we have when we come to a point that we have to make a decision and that we're brave in making that decision and trying to do something, understanding that in a hundred years, somebody might look back and go, man, those people were way off the mark. I got you. How much of the stuff you do, how much of it comes down to like emergencies? Or is it more like these like general kind of long-term trends? It's more, yeah, I mean, I, it's an interesting way to look at it. I, I would say that it's, it's, uh, it's more slow-burning emergencies. You know, it, it's slow-burning emergencies. Yeah, it's, it's things that you, know, that you know are probably headed in a bad direction. And, you know, but it also takes a long time to implement solutions. Yeah. So, well, when I say, like, what I would classify as emergency, we recently had a conversation with someone working on 
Mexican gray wolves, okay? And, and they had, you know, there was a point when there was seven in existence, okay? I feel like at that point, you're sort of in emergency land. Yeah, right? I mean, I, I think any time that... If your goal is to have them not go away, that's an emergency. Right. Other things are these, like, I would say, like, salmon in the lower 48. So Pacific North, like, it's emergency status right now. I, I would argue, okay. Other things are like, man, you know, like, like for instance, there's, we've seen some declines of turkeys in some states, and it's kind of mysterious, like what's going on with turkeys. I'd be like, not quite emergency yet, but definitely something that warrants watching for. Well, yeah, and I mean, ultimately, our hope would be that that we don't get surprised by things like that nearly as often anymore, right? So, you know. I'm. I don't know. I. I know. I like to hunt turkeys. I don't know. You know a whole lot about turkey biology or or the turkey science world. But you know, I would suspect that we know in part that turkeys are in decline because there's monitoring data out there about turkeys that state fish and wildlife agencies are collecting. Probably harvest data. You know, as as well as on the ground things like you know nest success and and hatch success and those kind of metrics and. You know, all of that is aimed at understanding what's going on so that instead of something getting all the way to the emergency stage, you know, that, that we're able to try to start implementing solutions before before yeah. we get to the last seven in captivity. Just, yeah, to prevent emergencies. Right. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best to find off-road trails and off-grid camping and to use fully functional GPS when you're out of service. And as we all know, that being out of service is usually where the best places start. Plus, there's color-coded public and private land boundaries, which are super handy for finding off-grid camping. And I said it before, but I want to make sure it sticks. Offline maps. What this means is it allows you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Just download the map ahead of time. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. 
I've been using Onyx for many years. I use it, I'm not joking, on a daily basis. There is zero hunting I do without Onyx. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. Born in 2003 in Knoxville, Tennessee, Sport Dog was forged by a passionate group of hunters and dog trainers who intimately understood the challenges of the field and the special connection between hunters and their dogs. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. Now, I've got two good buddies with what I would call really, really good waterfowl dogs. And here's one of those buddies, Max. Not the dog, but the buddy. I've used that sport dog collar now in multiple different states, U.S. and Canada. Different temperatures all the way to negative 20 degrees, and it just doesn't stop working. I'm a fan for life. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. What do you, uh, when you, when you take like the long, the long view on wildlife and wildlife funding, what, what are some of your feelings? Well, I mean, like, what are some of the things that you're like optimistic about? What are some things you're pessimistic about? You know, that's, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot that, that I am really personally pessimistic about on the funding side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're familiar with the argument, right? That if there is a, that if Americans um, were to, you know, become increasingly urbanized and they, and they dissociate from hunting and fishing, okay, and we have less people out doing these activities, um, less people buying firearms, that you're going to see a diminishment in dollars to go to wildlife that doesn't keep you up at night like you like you're not like that's just too hard to think about or too much unknown yeah i mean it's that would certainly be be one of those things that for me right now in in my role with the agency you know uh, i've i've got plenty of on the ground immediate kind of problems yeah um, you're more, yeah i think i think it's you know it's it's a great question where do you know where do non-consumptive users, for for lack of a better term, fit in the picture of wildlife management? And you know how how do we how do we bring them in and and make room for for that viewpoint in the big picture? Um, you know, and and then I think that sort of gets to how how can they contribute? I mean, you know, is is there a, a similar model to what we currently do with the money that is all tied back to the sale of hunting and fishing licenses with other folks. So I mean, like looking forward, is there a way that non-consumptive wildlife users, is there a way we would find that they would start funding some stuff with wildlife? Well, I, mean, I know it's not your department, but it's like a thing that you hear discussed. Well, I mean, just as a guy that likes to spend time outdoors, you know? Yeah, right. And I mean, I think, 
you know, I, I guess I think to some degree it is the department that I work in and, you know, in the sense that, that I work with lots of threatened and endangered and imperiled fish and, you know, that, that would be the kind of funding that, you know, that could really boost budgets for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we talk about this sometimes, uh, at work, you know, wh- I mean, one thing, and it almost, it almost sounds funny, but one thing that people can do to support fish and wildlife conservation in the states that they live in is to buy a hunting or fishing license. Whether they go out or not. Right. And, you know, I mean, again, I, you know, I, I suppose some folks might chuckle at that, but, you know, when you look at the fact that, that we spend a lot of state money, you know, on non-game fish and wildlife and that the formulas for money coming to the states through the excise programs through PR and DJ are based on how many licenses oh, we sell. Yeah, mm. it's like matching dollars. It's Ex- like when you listen to an NPR fundraising, they talk about matching dollars. Yeah, you're basically getting three to one back. Yeah, they should just. Why don't the Why don't the state The state should just start selling the. Um, I guess they do like duck stamp. No, that's federal. But why does the state just like have a thing that they just put out there? Well, and Being like they a dude do. who likes to look at they have them. license. They have them. Sure. No license plates. New Mexico. No, no, no. They have like, uh, they're like what, like recreation cards they call them or things like that. I don't I'm habitat not, stamps. So, yeah, so we we have a habitat stamp program, which would be another thing. You know, somebody could just buy a habitat stamp. Um, I believe all of that money gets matched again. Yeah, and then you can also make a donation on your license plate, at, right? Yeah, motor vehicle stuff to go to state. Yeah, so so like most states, ours is called Share with Wildlife. Okay. Um, and a lot of that share with wildlife funding actually gets matched against state wildlife grant money, you know, so that's that's almost exclusively spent on on non game. Does that bring any animals. money in? Uh you know, I don't know the numbers for for what's there. It's it's not you know it's not millions of dollars. Okay. So so you know, but I think the the path that you were going down earlier is is like the holy grail, right? For this kind of funding, which would be an excise tax on other outdoor equipment, every damn backpack that gets sold in the country. Well, and right, I you know that I think that, I think we should. Every, I would pay. Every, I would every boot. pay that shit. I would just. I would draw like. I would come in and I'd go down to REI and I'd be like, "Yep, all this shit, right?" And just do that across the board. Yeah, you know, I, I if mean, you're at skis, anything, if you're doing a thing if you're doing a thing in the out of doors if i was just like the the emperor of the world okay or just the emperor of the country i would say that if you're doing an outdoor activity i'm going to tax your shit 10 percent. yeah habitat and wildlife right i mean and you know unless you can convince me that when you see an elk you don't look at it then i'd give you like some kind of exemption because <laughs> if i'm the emperor that's just how i'm gonna run it that's how i'm gonna run the program yeah, you know, obviously, I'm I, like you're really telling me honestly, you don't look at wildlife, like really don't look at it. Then, if that's the case, if you look out your window, you're like, holy shit, elk, you pay for all your shit. That's what I would do. Yeah, and I can't, you know, I I would never advocate a, a legislative position, but you know, I mean, I know, but here's the thing: you could be buying, you could be buying a little like pocket pistol, okay. 
for home defense, you're paying for wildlife. How is that have how does that have more to do with wildlife than a pair of hiking boots? It's an imperfect system right now. I'm not saying we should excuse those people. I just think that and yeah, and again, you're out of like, you know, I know you don't want to you can't like you don't want to give an opinion about this because of the capacity in which you're here, but I just feel like if that person's paying, a dude with hiking boots should damn sure be paying. At least with DJ, they sort of did that with the boat fuel. I didn't know that. Because it's not do, like only fishermen. or yeah. yeah. Yesterday, I saw a lot of people out there that obviously are chipping in, and they weren't doing any fishing. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> you're right. Some dude pulling wakeboards is like a is like a urban person who has a concealed carry, and every time they buy ammo or whatever, they're kicking in. Yeah, the dude pulling yeah. wakeboards is paying for fish. Yeah. We've heard reasons why this act or, or these things haven't gone through. What's interesting to me is that we often ask, like a lot of people we work with aren't necessarily hunters and fishermen, but they are rock climbers and skiers and whatever. And everybody we ask are like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'd pay 10% on what, my skis. What I've heard, and I've only, be, like, I've had some conversations around this, and I heard an argument they make is that so many people who make, like, for instance, apparel, okay, sewn goods, right? Sewn goods. It's imported. And they're already under such a tax burden from importing their materials or importing manufactured goods that they're saying we're taxed too much already. We can't afford to add yet another tax. And I don't know if you went and asked the gun industry, like, can you afford more taxes? They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, no problem. Anybody's going to say that, Mm -hmm. but that's the argument you hear. And they resist it because people go to like outdoor retailers and push them on this idea and they don't want it. They don't want it. But meanwhile, the hunting, the hunting and fishing industries were like, please do it. Let's do it. But Roosevelt put, Roosevelt put it to him. Franklin Roosevelt put it to him. He's like, no one will pay for this except you. If you want this to happen, you will have to pay for it because no one else is going to do it. And they did it. Advocating for any new taxes on a political level too is like, political suicide. Different world. suicide yeah it's a different world now than it was right but i i think it's like it would solve so many of our problems maybe it doesn't need to be 10 to 11 percent we'll give yeah, them a break two we'll give them Four. a light yeah because they're like we'll give them like a lightweight user break mm-hmm. i mean ultimately the revenue needs to be generated somehow so it's got to come from somewhere didn't the state did the state somewhere just add a little bit on a sales tax for wildlife, yeah, um, I believe, I believe it may have been Missouri, but I think yep, you should uh, confirm that one. Type that up, Yanni. Something to do down there. Um, <laughs> so you know, I I would mention that please that uh, if if in in the mythical world that that were ever to happen. My emperor idea, right? Yeah, that you know, if they were going to be similar programs to PR and DJ, they would have to come with matching state funds. There would have to be a matching source of state revenue if it was exactly the gotcha. same model. You don't want to all go into the federal kitty. Well, you know, I mean, Cause just, match, cause just to say that you. right now we have we have license sale dollars that we match against. You know, to do the whole reimbursement thing that right. we talked about earlier. So I'll think of a remedy to that too. <laughs> Then I would say that uh, that all states are going to have to add a one percent sales tax to fund fish and wildlife to give matching dollars to draw off my backpacker tax. 
That's fine. How do you start a movement? Like a like a movement. I I don't know. You're gonna be hard pressed to get people to pay more, man. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying though. Every time we ask the people, I, we've yet to have. I mean, Everyone I, like, I know that every backpacker I know is like, dude, I would totally pay it. Yeah. If I I'll knew that that's that. how it worked, if I knew that that's how it worked and that's where I went, I would happily pay it. I, I think, think there's a gray area when it's voluntary or mandated. When she start getting told what to do. Do some people just like the relief of being told what to do? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'll go along. All right, Mike, what else, man? What yeah. else what else do you got? Yeah, so, you know, we we covered we covered a couple of those why do we manage non-game fish and wildlife species yeah. arguments. Ethics? Yeah, and, and ecosystems. So, right. Legal, ethical, ecological, right? Yeah. So those those are the three that we talked about, but you know, there are three really pragmatic reasons why if you say, you know, I I'm not personally concerned about non-game animals, you know, that there are still some reasons why it's in your best interest that your state is managing those things. Yeah. So the first one, and, you know, you guys have talked a lot about it in the past, is um, it. we think as a state agency that it's a good thing for us to maintain as much management control over species as, as we can. Okay. It's generally in the state's interest to manage its own fish and wildlife. So we want to keep... As opposed to what? As opposed to federal management. Okay. So we want to do what we can, in part because it's the right thing to do, in part because it's our interest from a management perspective, to keep animals from getting listed under the Endangered Species Act. You want to maintain your jurisdiction. Right. Yeah. So we want to know what's going on with those animals out in the landscape, you know, and we want to work towards conserving those animals in the cases when we can, particularly if we think that they're in decline. That helps keep them off the list. And then animals, once they do get on the list, or if they do get on the list, we want to work towards recovery to bring more management authority back to the state. And, you know, I want to be clear. We work with lots of federal partners very closely in very productive ways. You know, it, it, is, it is not that, you know, we're not interested in, in working with our federal partners. It, it's just that, you know, from the state's perspective, keeping things off the list and recovering animals once they're on helps us maintain more more management authority for the yeah animals. it's like doing your, you're doing your job right so you know that's that's one pragmatic reason is to to head off listing and work towards recovery in the cases where things are listed because if it gets listed and the feds assume control of it there might be things that would happen that would have negative implications for people in your state well yeah and so that that really ties to to the second part of that which is that because the Fish and Wildlife Service administers these federal aid programs, that's what we you know, call them federal aid programs, um, we, to get that money, we have to ensure that we are complying with all the federal laws. So getting the money creates this nexus to the federal government, which means that you know, we have to consult on almost everything we do or every project that we use money on, we have to consult with the Fish and Wildlife Service to make sure that everybody understands what the potential impacts to 
animals that are listed under ESA will be. And there's other federal laws like the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, you know, and other things that we have to comply with. And and so a really so good... Give, give, uh, I need you to back up on that one. So you're saying, like, let's say you wanted to do a project. Um, you're going to do a thing to help out trout. Okay. Trout habitat. You're saying that you also need to make sure that that work isn't going to impact an endangered species, an endangered or threatened species. That's yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. And so, you know, a, a really good example that, that kind of ties these two things together is that, uh, there's currently action to list a petition to list Rio Grande chub. Uh, Rio Grande chub exists in a lot of places in New Mexico. Some of those places are recreational rainbow trout fisheries that we stock with rainbow trout. Uh. Right. So we use Dingle Johnson money at our hatcheries, you know, to raise the fish and to drive them out there to stock them. And there's, you know, there's a, there's a fair number of high use fisheries in New Mexico that, you know, wouldn't sustain wild trout populations at the kind of harvest. And those rainbow trout aren't good for the chubs. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would say that out of hand. Um, I don't know that we have great data on on good or not. There are a lot of places that we there are places that we stock Rio Grande chub, or I'm sorry, that we stock rainbow trout that also have Rio Grande chub. So it it's not a completely exclusive thing. Yeah, you know, but again, you know, from a, a pragmatic perspective, if Rio Grande chub were to be listed, there would be a consultation that would have to happen about the potential impacts of rainbow trout on chub, and that would have an effect to you know the the average trout fisherman out there who utilizes those. I'm getting those what you're fishers. saying, yeah. That if uh, that it could spell bad shit for rainbow trout in some places. Not that I'm a fan of rainbow trout. But it could spell bad shit for rainbow trout if that if the chub got listed as an endangered species. Yeah, it, I mean it 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 had the it would have the potential to to change that landscape. And have you ever read the book arguing that that lays out a really lucid argument that the rainbow the, of describing the rainbow trout as a synthetic fish, an entirely synthetic fish? Yeah, Anders Halverson, yeah. I think it's a man-made fish. Yeah, it's 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 in when you start reading the history of that fish and how it's been spread around and how it all came to be. Yeah, it's like a make-believe fish. Yeah, and again, you know, very, I mean... Very popular make-believe fish. But the fact that people look at it and associate it somehow with wildness or pristineness is laughable. Yeah, and Except I, for in very few watersheds. I don't want to make a value judgment about rainbow trout. I'm not know, inviting I mean, you to. <laughs> <laughs> we, we certainly have a lot of folks. People love them. People right. love them. But it's, it's like, uh, it's kind of... Jimmy Dorn, you raising your hand, but you live in actual rainbow trout country, so you don't count. Okay. <laughs> no, Fair if you're on the Sorry. yeah the Pacific Rim, uh-huh. you could you can yeah, it's okay to like rainbow trout on the Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. It's all the other people. If you if you when you flush your toilet, right? If that water flows into the Pacific. You can like rainbow trout. Okay. If you flush your toilet and it doesn't, you should not like them. Okay. That's coming from me. All right. Not our guest, Mike Rule. Gotcha. And, you know, I would provide one perspective on that. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, right? And they, they 
stock a lot of trout in Pennsylvania. And, Dude, and, I grew up fishing rainbows. All we did was fish non-natives in Michigan. I, I'm not saying, like, I'm not holier than thou. I'm just saying it's like we've created a weird situation all sure. over the country. When I was growing up, we, like, we did fish some. We fished native fish. But we spent a ton of time fishing a lot of things that had been introduced into our ecosystem to the detriment of native species, right? Yeah. And I think that we're going to have, if we're looking long ways, I think that we're going to continue to, there's going to be a forced reckoning with that going forward. And you've kind of alluded it to yourself a little bit. I, I mean, I, you know, I think to a degree we're, we're in the reckoning. We're, we're at least constantly looking for a balance. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, how and, and where we manage water specifically for native fish, you know, and other places where we manage water for recreational opportunities. And, we, you know, we recently published a, a statewide fisheries management plan. If, you know, if anybody's interested in a particular water in New Mexico, you can go in there and it will outline, you know, what our, our main management objective is. And, and that is not to say, you know, and just because it says the water's going to be managed for native fish, that there absolutely won't be any sport fish there. But you know, it it does provide some insight into what the state's thinking. Uh, yeah, because a lot, but because a lot of the relationships are totally harmonious. Like it's really hard. People try, but people don't have a lot of luck. And there are exceptions to this, but like generally, people look and be like, it's hard to find rock solid evidence that turkeys are deleterious in all the places they've been introduced, right? It's like there's some suspicions here and there, but it's just generally like when you put turkeys on the ground, we haven't yet identified a way in which that's a major screw-up, quite like we had when you put common carp into a waterway. There's a tremendous amount of evidence to suggest we shouldn't have dumped carp everywhere. Right. You know, you know and I mean... To my point, even I, I worked in Yellowstone National Park before I worked for New Mexico, um, and even there, in their current native fish conservation plan, you know they identify a portion of the park. It's uh, the Firehole River, the Gibbon River below the falls, and the Madison, where you know they are essentially saying this is an area that is a high value recreational trout fishery, and we at least in the, I believe, the 20-year time frame of that plan, don't intend to do native fish work in that reach. That's Is that part right? of the balance. So they're saying, like, we're going to have room for non-native trout, brown trout, rainbow trout. We're making room for those fisheries because people value it. Well, I don't, they're not necessarily saying, they're not making room in the sense that they're expanding them in any way. They're, they're just not actively working to control non-native trout in those places. I got you. Yeah. So, so go back to talking about the thing you guys published, the, the where you can look up your waterway. Yeah, it's, it's the, it's the statewide, uh, fisheries management plan. It's available through the New Mexico department. Of and it lays out like website. what long-term goals are. Yeah. It, it lays out what our, what our management objectives are in, uh, in the waters of the state. Is there anything in there that's real, like controversial? Um, you know, I suppose that that would that would depend who you ask. Uh, it, uh, it it has largely been supported by 
by the public and and of course it was approved by by our commission so um you know I'm, there may be folks that are uh unhappy with with uh, the direction some specific waters are going but of course it's a quite hard thing to do to make everybody happy all the time yeah yeah so does that exhaust your list of why uh, your list of things about why we should no i want to hear <laughs> it's more. a long list no i want more if you got, well, I got you know i the last one is is that um when we work on on projects that benefit non-game animals they almost always have ancillary benefits for things that we more generally associate with hunting or angling okay um i've been working on a project for chihuahua chub in the members river uh, which is in southwestern New Mexico, kind of south of the Gila. How big is this chub? Uh, up to ten or twelve inches. It's a, it is an ESA listed species. Um, so we've been working to do habitat improvement, which includes work in the riparian corridor for uh, the chub and for Chiricahua leopard frog, uh, also a listed species of frog. Um, you know, but but overall, we're doing habitat improvement work both in the river and in the riparian corridor and that riparian corridor has javelina it has mule deer quail uh the last time i was down there i saw bear tracks along the river it's not the kind of place that a guy from pennsylvania would expect to encounter bear tracks but but they're there um you know as as well as bats and uh rio grande sucker and other non-game um fish and wildlife so you know that project will have a benefit for that system on the whole. So even though somebody could look at it and say, you're spending money on chub, while that's true, there's also ancillary benefits for other fish and wildlife. Yeah. Um, have, do you, does anybody fish for those chubs? Uh, not that I know of. I've, I've seen them rise to, uh, to, you know, mayflies on the surface of the river. So you could. In in theory, you could. Yeah. Do you feel that, are there cases where, where you get, you ever feel blowback from people saying, like, why are we spending money? Like, do, do you hear it where people within government, like even elected people, um, will kind of lampoon the, or, you know, mock the idea of spending money on things that no one, like, care, like, quote, cares about? I mean, like, you know, probably like you, I hear about it. It it's not been a personal experience that I've that I've had where where I had a, a project that got lampooned in that way and shut down. Yeah. I mean there was a fellow running for president last fall that was mocking a smelt in the he, he was mocking like actually mocking the fish, mocking a smelt in California as being too small to care about. So I mean it does happen. Yeah, there, I mean, there's there is politics in, involved in everything, and and uh, you know some consideration of politics is is uh, probably always prudent. Like, why would anyone care about that? Yeah, and that's you know, it's like, it, let me count the ways, right? And that's in part <laughs> what I hope to provide people is you know if you get into those conversations about why should I care about that, you know, there's a couple of reasons. I mean, you know, some some pragmatic reasons about you know, why, particularly as hunters and anglers, we should care about working with non-game fish and wildlife. The thing that that I return to again and again in thinking about this and talking about it with other hunters and fishermen is um, 
it's just kind of like a sickening kind of audacity that we would somehow come to the idea that that certain species don't warrant existing. Like, you want to talk about sort of human hubris and arrogance would be that, and I don't care what your understanding of the world is, if you have just a completely secular view, if you have a religious view of the world, like there's no worldview that I think could really support the idea that we could sit back and let species that exist on this earth vanish because we in this particular moment in time don't really care about it. It's just like, it just strikes me as being like absolutely immoral. Yeah, and I, I think. And I don't throw that stuff around. Like, I don't weigh in on a lot of like social morality issues. I'm kind of like a, you know, when it comes to like general terms of morality, I'm kind of like a um, privacy of your own home kind of guy, right? Like, I don't really believe in getting in there and legislating activities between consenting adults and stuff. Uh, but when it comes to like moral issues, I feel that wiping things off of the face of the earth gone forever, you are playing with some shit that you should not be playing with. Yeah, I think that's the you know, <laughs> that's the ethical argument, right? Is is that it's the right thing to do to to preserve our natural history as intact as we can. Yeah. The idea that, that some people find it acceptable that we would have less species on earth. You know? Right. But then some people get swept up in the some people get swept up in the idea that like things go extinct all the time, so it's okay. Right? We used to have these big-ass, huge dinosaurs, and they're gone now. So I uh, guess it doesn't matter. And it's kind of like uh, people argue that, but I find it's such like a flawed way of thinking. That because extinctions do happen, that we would just open it up and, and allow them to happen. Especially from human-caused activities. Yeah, I mean, you know. There's... Yeah, because you can't argue that it's not natural. Even the geneticist that we spoke with. Right, she's like extinction. Extinction is natural. Yeah, far more things have gone extinct yeah. than are in existence right now. Right, but that's not. But the but no, on our, so on our yeah. activities exactly. So I think on our watch, we can't let it happen. Yeah, on our watch, and there's a matter of time scale at play there too. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, you get into geological time. Right. You know, in uh, John John McPhee has a. Have you ever read Annals of the Former World? I haven't. So John McPhee wrote three books about geology, and when they were they were eventually published together as Annals of the Former World. And in this book, there's, there's a couple things. One, he says that if he was gonna, if he had to sum up his his trilogy in one sentence, it would be that the peak of Mount Everest is marine limestone. So the top of Mount Everest is rock that was laid out on the bottom of an ocean. But another point he makes is that if you imagine life on Earth, so not just Earth, like the form, but life on Earth, if you imagine as being a man's outstretched arms as life on Earth, from one fingertip to the other fingertip as a timeline, you could remove human history with one stroke of a nail file. Right? It's a powerful image. Yeah. And when you imagine the amount of extinctions that have occurred under our watch and that one, the amount of extinctions that we have conducted in that one stroke of a nail file, 
we're not living at a sustainable rate as far as letting shit slide. You know? And a lot of that shit would have been good hunting and fishing, the passenger pigeon. Right? <laughs> so it's, it is, it does impact hunters and fishermen, man. There's a lot of shit that would have been good to hunt that you can't hunt anymore. What else, Mike? You Are know, other things you want to talk about? No, I mean, you know, I think, I think we, we, we covered most of it there. I think there are a couple interesting points when, you know, when we sort of come at, at things from the perspective of, of, uh, you know, what, what are agencies doing with the money and, and what does, what do those things mean? Not just to hunters and anglers, but to, to other folks. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we mentioned that law enforcement is not reimbursable under wildlife sports fish restoration acts. That's a little surprising because they're doing enforcement on to for the betterment of wildlife. But okay, I'll take like at face value, I, I like I accept what you're saying, but it is a little bit surprising to me. Right, and I mean, I think it is a little bit surprising because you know, we, I mean, we essentially police our own ranks in that way, right? I mean, yeah. we're completely paying for uh, you know a law enforcement system to protect the resource. That's ultimately what it's about, right? Is is to protect those resources? Yeah, and poachers. A lot of them probably aren't buying licenses, so they're not even paying into the. They're not even paying for the guy that's going to arrest them. That's right. They're, I mean, <laughs> you know, they're 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 doing it for us, so that you know, the license buyers ha- have a resource to recreate. Yeah. Through, but you know, obviously, game wardens do um, lots of things that aren't just checking fishing licenses. Um, you know, for instance, when when there's a call about a black bear in somebody's garage it's often you know that that call ends up with a with a game warden and they show up to try to resolve the situation and generally you know their approach is obviously to keep people safe first but hopefully have the most positive outcome for the for the bear for whatever wildlife it is when they show up and you know they're also not asking a homeowner to see their hunting license when they show up. Yeah. It's a, it's a service that's provided to the public, you know, by the hunting and angling community, by the license buyers in those states. Dude, it should say that right on their truck. <laughs> Brought to you by a dude that likes to hunt and fish. You know, and, and I'm, I mean, obviously for me, I'm, I'm, I couldn't be more happy that we do that because, you know, the goal is to, to have positive outcomes yeah. for those animals. But, you know, it is, it is something that, that is being provided, you know, and then the other thing is in a state like New Mexico, most of the Western states and really, you know, all across the country, there's, there's game wardens whose districts are in remote and, you know, rural places. And they just overall help to provide law enforcement presence in those places. You know, we, I mean, we hear all the time about game wardens, you know, being involved in, in things that aren't wildlife related. They're just, you know, they're there to help. They show up at the scene of an accident yeah. to help folks. I was out in California doing a story about livestock, guys that investigate livestock theft, and they have a rural crime task force. And I, was, I met with game wardens who'd gone in on drug raids at the time. I think it might have changed after that. But they were called in to do all kinds of shit. Sure. And, you know, I mean, they, they contact all kinds of folks, and, you know, when they make those contacts, they do the normal checks that, you know, law enforcement officers do, and you know, so they they just help keep things safer in general. Yeah, 
Um, you know, another one is, uh, so we talked a little bit about habitat. You know, I, I, uh, I got an estimate in New Mexico over a 10 year span, it'll be about $25 million that's either already been spent or, or we have earmarked to spend on, on habitat protection. And, and that is all just, uh, PR connected, not the fish stuff that we're doing. Yep. And, you know, when Pittman you... Pittman Roberts, not PR public relations, but Pitt, Pittman Roberts yeah. is connected, yeah. Wildlife Restoration Act. Yeah. Um, you know, those projects do lots of things that, like, are for forest health and watershed health, you know, thinning, controlled burning, things that help to prevent catastrophic wildfires that would have serious impacts on things like people's water supplies, right? You don't, when, when you get catastrophic wildfire, if the town that you live in has a water supply reservoir that's downstream of that and you get some post-fire flooding, you can get a lot of, you know, negative consequences yeah. from, from that. And, you know, I, there's, there's at least one example of, I can think of where, you know, a water supply reservoir, you know, more or less filled up with sediment than, you know, have to drain it and dredge it to to get it back so that it can come back online. From a wildfire. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. So you know, again, that the money is is coming through and being matched by license dollars and ultimately being paid for in part, you know, by those license dollars. But and, and it's good for wildlife, and that's the focus of it. But everybody reaps a benefit, you know, from doing things that benefit. Ecosystem health, forest health, watershed health. Yeah, um, you know, so I think that that's a great thing that you know that we help to do out there in the landscape. the The last really interesting example I'll give you is, you know, aquatic invasive species. Of course, are are always a big thing, and we do a lot of work with aquatic invasive species. Um, New Mexico, you know, we are fortunate that you know that through the work that we've done, you know, we don't have uh, either of the two really common Asian mussels, so we don't have zebra or quagga mussels. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, we we work hard to do um, inspections on watercraft coming into the state, you know, and educate people about those species. And yes, those species getting into systems that would have ecological impacts, you know, both to to sport fish and to to non game fish and probably other wildlife as well but they would also have substantial impacts to water infrastructure so if you have water infrastructure for irrigation that's drawing out of a reservoir and you get zebra mussels in the reservoir you're going to have to spend some money you know basically keeping those pipes open keeping zebra mussels from actually growing to a point where it it plugs up that water yeah, it's co- it costs in the great lakes they cost hundreds of millions of dollars of so infrastructure problems right and not even mention like the the implications for fisheries, right? And so I, you know, that's that's also. I mean, we as you know, hunters and anglers are making an investment to keep those things out, and you know, there there is a benefit to the general public to do that too. People should be kissing our asses more <laughs> than they do, man. People should be. You should walk down the road, and people should be yelling out their their car windows like, "Thank you, hunter and fisherman." Well, and I mean, you know. Thank you. I, I, All you do for us. Really why, you know, I wanted to come on is, <laughs> is not 
<laughs> not, you know, not the not have people. More, you're not getting the credit you deserve. No, not that. But, <laughs> but so that when we have conversations with people who don't do this, who aren't involved in the recreational side of wildlife, you know, I think, and I think you've talked about it, like we're a pretty small percentage, right? Like so, something like in, in 2006, 5% of men over 16 years old bought or yeah. hunt, hunted for deer. Nationally, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and women, you know, about 1% of, of women. So we're not like a huge majority population. It, it, yeah, and it varies by, greatly by state to state. Right. From, from less than 1% to, you know, upwards of 15% higher. Yeah. Right. But yeah, nationally about 5%. But, you know, so this, this thought that it's going to be like some logical argument that we will win or lose, I don't think is really probably how it's going to work. But I think if we can take the information about all the things, you know, that we do that are a benefit, not just to fish and wildlife that we can harvest you know but also to non-game fish and wildlife and also just to the public at large you know if we can internalize that and again not approach it like you know i'm going to hammer somebody with this argument but when we engage people and when we talk to folks and when we hear things you know that we only care about elk you know that we have a a standpoint an informed standpoint to come at that from and say, well, you know, you know, there, there are some other things that your state fish and wildlife agency is doing and, you know, they're doing them with revenue that's generated through the sale of hunting and fishing licenses. And, you know, it does benefit Chihuahua Chub, yep. you know, and by the way, it, it does help protect that watershed above your city's, you know, drinking water supply. I think that that can be meaningful. Yeah, and as we learned from Greg Blaskovich, you need to throw out the argument of, oh, I'm controlling the deer populations for you. That's why you, you just should like people me. don't care. <laughs> people don't give a shit. And they as we know, they don't recognize as we know, problem. you kind of sort of are, and you kind of sort of are. Yeah, the people so don't like, recognize, like your average Joe Blow doesn't recognize the problem. No. Is what you're saying. I'm saying that the average, I don't even know how true this is but i feel like a, a lot of hunters like that that is like their like go-to is like oh no this is why you should like us hunter and fishermen because we're controlling the wildlife population for you keep the deer numbers down because otherwise they're all going to die of disease and as we learned from greg that argument doesn't work people don't care and i think you in the last 10 minutes have given given the people a lot of like great arguments and points to make you know yeah yeah, yeah. You know, but the great conservationist jim Poswitz. When questioned about why uh, why doesn't the American public like know the story, and he's like, hunters don't even know the story, right? Because you got to go teach it to them, their own story. They don't even know their own story. You got to teach their own story to them before you have any chance of the broader public understanding it. The guy engaged in it doesn't even know. He just pissed because license fees went up. <laughs> yeah, <totally>. what <laughs> last year it was three dollars <laughs> um do you want to hear about a couple state funding successes that are outside of the stuff that we've talked about yeah man the, we were talking about the the some states that added sales taxes so it was missouri and arkansas conservation sales taxes virginia and texas have dedicating tax revenues from outdoor gear 
So there are two states that are actually taxing tents and backpacks. Uh, dedicated lottery revenues for Colorado, Arizona, and Maine. And then Florida and South Carolina have real estate transfer taxes that go directly to uh, game and fish agencies. More taxes. That's not going to run on. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm joking. But what I do like, I don't like, I'm not going to run on more taxes, but I am going to, I am going to, the idea of, um, of identifying other user groups who, who benefit from wildlife and who tend to want to have a say in wildlife, that you need to earn your seat at the table. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I certainly sure. think that that when you know folks look at that and wanting a seat at the table, I, you know, I think it's fair to to ask, you know, h- how they're going to contribute. Yeah. I mean, we have for as hunters and anglers, we have for a long time now contributed a lot of resources to conserving fish and wildlife. Here's a devil advocate argument that I can already hear brewing um, somewhere off. You just hear it out there. Yeah. Is that, uh, do we want that? Do we want these people to have a say at the table? No. I just want them to pay. (laughs) Yeah, I want them to pay but have no input. (laughs) I don't don't care what they think. All right, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't want to hear about it. You don't want to hear about it? No, because I know where you're going with this. Right, yeah. Because they're going to say, well, yeah, it's going to be the New Jersey cat ladies all of a sudden are going to actually start paying. And they're going to say, well, no, I don't think you should be hunting those animals anymore. I had someone recently bring up that I had talked about New Jersey, Jersey cat ladies. Quite a bit. But here's the thing. <laughs> New Jersey <laughs> just gets a bad I don't rap. Know. You know I live no, there. No, no, no. I want to clarify. <laughs> I want to clarify. I don't know any New Jersey cat ladies. But when I close my eyes and imagine... The exact I, when I imagine like like my perspective on wildlife in America, mm-hmm. okay, and my upbringing, the things that shape my perspective on wildlife in America, and I try to visualize the opposite of my perspective on wildlife. I feel that it's embodied by what I imagine a old lady in New Jersey who owns a shitload of cats might think. <clears throat> I just picture like that would be the antithesis of my own perspective. Would be like a a cat lady, mm-hmm. yes, because she's rescued all those cats. Just somehow, I don't really. I, I need to spend more time picturing her because I might come up with a different thing or picture in New Jersey in a different life. <laughs> yeah, I just picture like a New Jersey cat lady being like my arch rival when it comes to my perspectives on wildlife management. So you know, I'm gonna stop saying it. Actually, I would lay out there that you know we we live in a representative democracy, so the concept that that we can keep folks from having a seat at the table maybe isn't the most sustainable approach to this no. in the long term anyway. No, it's not. I mean, we we have to learn to engage other folks and, you know, and come at some of these questions from a point of empathy. Yeah, because you I think you're the one that brought up the idea that you have 5% of the population. Like we live in a democracy. So, um we live like as hunters and fishermen and a lot, there's a lot of hunters and fishermen that really want to act like this isn't true. But as hunters and fishermen, we live at the pleasure of the voting public. Who you're like your ability to live the lifestyle you live is because people who do not engage in the activities you engage in have a generally 
favorable impression of those activities. If they did not, you would be done. You're not going to win the. You're not going to win a popular vote by just having the guys that hunt and fish going out and casting their ballots. It doesn't work that way. Right. You're going to get smoked. You would lose all elections, ninety-five percent to five percent, and things in this country generally fall around a forty-nine fifty-one split. Is a landslide. Shit is tight now. Right. So you need to have, you need, yeah, I'm, a lot of what I said was joking because it's, it's true. Like, you need to have very strong allies that lie outside of your, the activities you engage in. Yeah. I, I you need mean, to live an exemplary lifestyle. Yeah. And, and, you know, we need to engage those people in, in ways that are meaningful to them. And, you know, I, that's why I really liked the episode with Greg. I mean, it, it's really what inspired me to reach out to you guys. You know about this topic because it, it sort of seemed like a natural segue from yeah you know how how do we how do we talk to people you know what are those quote unquote arguments or conversations that we can have with people that do influence the way they view hunting you know and and then the next step is you know how how do we be more informed about some of these things particularly that you know he laid out five or six arguments right and funding was one of them or the revenue side of things was was one of those arguments and yeah you know how do we how do we take that the next step how do we be informed when some when we say yeah the revenue and somebody comes back and says yeah but the revenue all gets spent on things that you can catch and shoot yep you know what Mike's referring to is I don't remember what number it is but if you go back we had a podcast episode some time ago where we interviewed a guy Greg Blaskovich who's a social sciences researcher at Stanford and what he was doing is he was testing um he was he was working with people who had a general like anti like an identifiable anti-hunting bent and he would test ideas um would test justifications of hunting with these individuals 53 episode 53 where they would go to people and here's a person who's like identifies as an anti-hunter and then they would test ideas and say like okay well what about if you knew this how does this change your perception of hunting and to look at what are the the realities and and rhetorics that hunters use and which of those are effective which of those move the needle um so we've been referring to that a lot you can you can go back and check that out jimmy dorn you got anything you want to wrap up with man um what kind of sports team is on your hat there it's the mariners seattle mariners baseball club okay yeah, got any concluding thoughts? Oof. Well, just, um, it's been good to learn just some out how our tax dollars are utilized, and I appreciate the knowledge and guys like Mike that are making it happen on the ground. It's 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 interesting. It's good to hear, and and uh, I walk away feeling good about it as opposed to generally with my tax money. I feel like most of the time it's being flushed down the shitter, and I don't, <laughs> I don't get that impression. To <laughs> well, um, put a fine point on it, I don't get that feeling. Um, and uh, I appreciate that. I really do, and I appreciate the hard work that people put in to make sure that we do have these opportunities in our future and hopefully down the road kids' futures and maybe try and leave the place better than we found it, and uh, guys like you, I think, are making that happen, and, uh, and I'm grateful. Um, other than that, I'm going to try and get you to stop harping on New Jersey. Cause, Dude, I'm quitting now. Oh, man. I'm going to come up with a new... <laughs> I'm going to come up with a new... Um, yeah. 
New arch nemesis. Right on, right on. I don't yeah. know what it's going to be. Again, I'm glad to be here. It's a good listen. I generally learn something when I sit around this table. So, good stuff. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yanni? Did you finish with all the reasons you had to manage for non-game species? Do you feel like you wrapped up that point? Yeah, I think I think right. about six reasons there. Yeah, no, he got yeah, he did. Got to all of them. I thought it was good. That was all. Couple interruptions in there, but we got there. <laughs> <laughs> That's par for the course. And Mike, any last? Oh, sorry, you got no. That was it. Mm-hmm. Um, any last final thing you forgot to mention? Well, yeah, you know, I just in in this line of of. Uh, of thinking about engaging people who aren't hunters and anglers. I, I came across a, a Wallace Stegner quote and I, I love Stegner, you know, just as far as being somebody who talked a lot about arid land and, and managing arid land, you know, Stegner, Stegner said, and this is a little bit of a, a paraphrase that wild places. And I think I would add to that wild things are part of the geography of hope. And, you know, when I think about that, I, I think Stegner really had something there, you know, that that we really, as people, draw hope from wild things and wild places. And, you know, my personal history is that my experience with wild things and wild places come from a perspective, you know, of, of hunting and fishing. That's how I grew up. That's how I got engaged. But, you know, there are other people out there that, came to wild things and wild places in different ways but that i believe probably experience a really similar emotional connection to okay and i i think it's good to think about you know how people perceive us and we perceive them you know i I generally tend to have an emotional response when i hear anything that i believe to sound threatening to hunting yeah but i bet you there are people who don't hunt, you know, who, when they hear about hunting, they perceive that as taking something out of the wild and that that is a threat to how, you know, they have come to the experience and, and, you know, coming back to that, you know, that it's, that there's hope in, you know, that we, we place hope in wild things and wild places. And so anything that we feel like diminishes that for us really draws an emotional response. And so, you know, I, I think that really trying to work to be more inclusive about, you know, how we talk about this stuff, having engaging conversations sometimes that are uncomfortable with people that don't agree with us is, you know, is uh, is really an important thing. And, you know, again, that Stegner quote, wild places, you know, are part of the geography of hope. A lesser-known author added to that, and what inspires hope from person to person is as similar as views from neighboring ridges, but also is different. And I think that, you know, really speaks to thinking about, you know, how we experience wild places and how others experience it and trying to find common ground. Yeah. I'll work on that. No, I, I'm joking. That that my, that means our buddy there at the top of the hill, the uh, the horse, the horse. What'd you call him? Our, the the um, timber buck hunter. Yeah, he shouldn't get so mad at the hippies when they're out there hiking. No, he hates the hippies. Yeah, we're gonna all eat hippies. Backpack hunters. No, they were. This is the horsemen. 
Yeah, weather was nice, so there was a lot of people in the woods during his haunt. This is a horseman who did not have pleasant feelings for the other people on the mountain. No. But, yeah. All right. They are our allies, right? I'm open to it. I'm open to it. Um, Mike, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. You come back sometime? I hope so. All right. Um, yeah, let's right. talk about bighorn sheep down in New Mexico next time you come back. Yeah, my wife's a, a bighorn sheep biologist. I understand that to be true. And also an avid hunter. So Is that right? Yeah, you guys should talk to her. About oh, bighorns? She, she's got all the information about bighorn sheep. I was down in your state. I was down in New Mexico um, where they were doing the governor's tag auctions. And a guy from the Desert Sheep, that was Desert Sheep Foundation, or, some kind, or someone having to do a sheep. Uh, an NGO that does sheep work. He was saying that uh, in New Mexico, wildlife work comes down to water and money. But with desert bighorns, you don't need the water. <laughs> so I thought it was an interesting take on that. All right. Thanks for tuning in. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need, and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. Hey, it's Steve here. Are you serious about hunting or self-defense? Well, starting in 1996, XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied that methodology to modern defensive handguns, all made in America and trusted by industry leaders. Meat Eater listeners can get an exclusive discount on the XS Sites website. So just go to xssites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout for 25% off. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light.